Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, good morning again. Today we continue our series walking through the foundations of the faith listed out in the Apostles' Creed. And so once again, let me ask you, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, as we again turn to your word today to understand these foundations of the faith, God, pray that you will bless us by your Holy Spirit. God, bless us with attentiveness, Lord. We come and we are a distracted people, so Lord, help us to focus on your word and on your truths. And God, pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to rejoice in these this good news, God, that we would not just hear it in our head, but that we would celebrate it in our heart and that we would then apply it to our everyday life. We need your help by your spirit. And so we pray that you would do so in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you remember, but about nine or 10 years ago, Harold Camping predicted that on May 21st, 2011, Jesus would return and it would be Judgment Day. Family Radio and Christian Radio Network spent $100 million to spread the message that Jesus was coming back on May 21st, 2011. I remember, in fact, maybe you do, that there were billboards along Highway 41 saying Jesus is coming back May 21st, 2011. Evidently, May 22nd come, came, and Jesus had not returned. Uh, I had heard stories. I did not see it for myself, but the billboards announcing Jesus was coming back May 21st were replaced by billboards that simply said, well, that was embarrassing. <laughs> did you see that? It's true then. It's true. When the world didn't end, Camping said that the rapture had been an invisible judgment day, which sounds a lot like my invisible 360 slam dunk. In Taiwan, Chen Meng 
men deemed himself a prophet and said God would appear on Channel 18 on March 31st, 1998 in Texas. He started this religious group called The Way and moved to Garland, Texas, where he said God would appear, I'm not making this up, God would appear in a spaceship disguised as clouds and take his followers away. December 21st, 2012, people thought that the world would end with the Mayan calendar. I don't know if you remember that, but, uh, but Rutgers did a poll and found that 10% of people throughout the world were very, feeling very anxious that the world might indeed be ending. This year, Ronald Wineland, a serial doomsday analyst who incorrectly predicted the end of the world in 2011, 2012, and 2013, now says that the world will definitely end on June 9th, 2019. What's today? It's past again. Christians for centuries have looked absolutely silly trying to predict Judgment Day, to predict when Christ will return, to predict the end of the world. And the irony is the Bible tells us a lot of things about that final day, that judgment day. But one thing that it tells us is that no one knows the day or the hour except for our Father in heaven. Matthew 24, Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father alone. Matthew 24, 25, Mark 13 says, Therefore be on alert, for you do not know which day our Lord is coming. In Matthew 24 and Luke 12, Jesus says, For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. We are commanded to be alert, to be ready for judgment day, because we do not know when it is coming. So if proper preparation for judgment day is not guessing the day or the hour, how then shall we prepare for judgment day? How then shall we prepare for the coming of Christ? That is the question we are looking at today. If you would please open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you do not, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a red one in the seat in front of you, and it will be page 1019 in that red Bible. Uh, last week, we looked at the current ministry of Jesus as he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. This week, we look at the future ministry of Jesus when he comes back to judge the living and the dead. Second Peter is written by the Apostle Peter. And in his writing, he is trying to encourage Christians that Christ truly does transform us, even in the midst of opposition. And in the three chapters of this letter, Peter addresses opposing theology to the gospel and in this final chapter, focuses in on the event of the judgment of the living and the dead. And so, if you would follow along with me as I read from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 18. This is God's word. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincerity sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. 
They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and and to the day of eternity. Amen. You know, religious zealots are not the only ones considering the end of the world. In the early 1900s, French astronomer Camille Flammarion thought Halley's Comet would come and snuff out life, which promoted the sale of anti-comet pills. True story. Scientists today are still trying to guess how the world will end. There are many theories out there. There's the big rip theory that as the universe continues to expand, at some point it will actually put a rip in the universe and the earth will explode. There's the big freeze theory that as, as again, as the universe expands, as, as suns and planets distance themselves from one another, that we will freeze to death. There is the big crunch theory that, that says that the universe is expanding, but at some time it's going to bounce back and start contracting, and we are going to be crunched. There is the big slurp theory, which is 
a belief that a bubble from another universe is going to cause the protons in our universe to decay. There are also climate scientists who are looking to their own theories. Just last month, I don't know if you heard this, just last month in Australia, a think tank concluded that at the current rate of climate change, the world will end by 2015, which is probably in my own lifetime. You know, why are people so interested in how the world is going to end? Why do they study it? Why do they develop theories about it? Why do we want to know how the world ends? Well, I think it's because we want to know how the story ends, don't we? It matters how this world and the whole game of life comes to a conclusion, right? It matters if it is a horrible defeat or an everlasting victory, and we want to prepare for it. Now, most worldviews believe the end of the world is going to be a horrible defeat. And so they are doing all that they can to prevent the end of the world. But for the Christian, Peter says that we are eagerly waiting for Christ's return and hastening the day. Because when Christ returns, it is not only the end of one story, but is the beginning of a glorious new story for all who are in Christ. And so how should we prepare for that final day, for that judgment day, for Christ's return? Well, first, Peter tells us that we should remember judgment day. Look at verse 1 with me again. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember, that is, return to one's mind or, or to be mindful of or to think of, you know, kind of like remember the Alamo. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Again, Peter writes this letter to encourage the church to pursue righteousness in the midst of opposition, both opposition outside the church in the form of persecution, but also opposition within the church through false teaching. And in this passage, Peter is telling the church to disregard the false teachers who are saying that Jesus is not coming back. And to remember the predictions of the prophets and the commands of Jesus and to be faithful till he returns. One Bible scholar estimated that there are 1,845 references to Christ's second coming in the Bible. In the New Testament, there are 318 references, meaning there is a reference to Christ's return almost every 30 verses in the New Testament. Which means in the Old Testament, there is over 1,500 references to Christ's return. And yet Peter tells us at the end of verse 3 that scoffers will come in the last days. By the last days, he's referring to the days between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. He says they will come in the last days with scoffing. And what is their motivation? He tells us. He says, following their own sinful desires. Peter is exposing 
that the reasons why people scoff at the second coming of Christ is because they want no accountability for their life. They don't want any threat of someone coming and, and judging them based on their, on their thoughts and on their actions and on their words. To, to illustrate this false theology, it would be like if the government said, I want you to pay taxes, but there is no tax day. There is no deadline. And, and we will not hold you accountable, right? What would we do if such a statement was made? Well, first off, we would celebrate, right? But then none of us would probably pay taxes. I mean, we should because we're Christians and the government tells us, to, but we probably, because there's no accountability. There's no judgment day. And so we can do whatever we want with our money. In the same way, these false teachers are saying, listen, there is no judgment day coming. And so we, we don't need to be accountable for the things we do. So we can do whatever we want to do. Verse 4 continues, says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Their argument is basically this. Listen, Peter, listen, church, every morning the sun, sun rises and every evening the sun sets and it has always been that way and it will always be that way. There is no coming of Jesus because things just continue as they always have been. Verse five, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through the water by the word of God. What Peter is saying is what the false teachers are forgetting is that there was a time when the sun did not rise. There was a time when the sun did not set. It was a time before creation. And by the word of his power, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light and there was light. He said, let there be a light to govern the day and there was the sun. And so God, by the word of his power, creates. And then Peter moves on to defend the faithfulness and power of God's word for the second coming. Verse 6, he says, And that by means of these, that is by the word of God, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Peter is actually referring to an argument that Jesus used when Jesus was defending his second coming. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says this. He says, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, talking about judgment day, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, this is what Peter's talking about as well. So will be with the coming of the son of man. And how were the days of Noah? It says, verse 38, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Why were the people in the days of Noah unaware of the coming flood? Is it because Noah did a really good job hiding that huge ark behind a tree? Is it because they did not hear his proclamations of righteousness and repentance? No, they were unaware of Christ coming again because they were suppressing the truth because they wanted to do whatever their evil hearts inclined them to do. 
Noah, on the other hand, we read in Hebrews eleven seven, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he commanded the, the world, condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I assume the people in Noah's day had a very similar argument. Listen, Noah, we see you're building that ark, but every morning the sun rises and every, mor- every evening the sun sets. It's always been that way. It's always going to be that way. We are safe. We are okay. The, the land has always been dry. And that was true until God spoke and brought judgment on the earth through rain and water and flood and many perished. Verse 7 continues, but by the same word, the word of God that created the world, the word of God that decreated the world through the flood, by the same world, the heavens and the earth are now, that now exists are stored up for fire, not water, but fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Just as the ungodly were judged and destroyed by surprise in the days of Noah, so will the ungodly today be judged and destroyed by surprise in the day of the Lord. Another scripture reference to this, and I know I have a lot of them for you here today, but Matthew 24 tells us of what's going to have happen on that judgment day. This is the teaching of Jesus. It says, Then two men will be in the field, One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Chapter 25, it's the same teaching. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, today's passage is a warning from God. I know I say this to you many Sundays, but there is no mistake that you are here today. It is part of God's sovereign plan that you would come and that you would hear this warning. Will you heed this warning? Christ can come at any moment. Peter says in verse 10, like a thief in the night. And at that time when Christ returns, it says all of our works will be exposed. All of our passions, all of our thoughts, all of the things that we do, they're going to be exposed before God. Those things that we do in secret will become open and plain to all. And we will be judged accordingly. And those who have sinned against God will be cast into eternal punishment. Will you heed this warning? Will you respond to this warning? Or will you, like the people in Peter's day and in Noah's day, scoff at this warning and continue to live life as is? There's a story in Reader's Digest about a year in which there was an early ice storm in the fall. And... Because of this ice storm, there was a bridge that collapsed. 
cars continued to travel towards the bridge that they had crossed many times before, and they assumed nothing had changed. And they ended up plunging into the icy river to their own peril. One man, however, got out of his car and he stood on the side of the highway and he tried to flag people down saying, the bridge is out, the bridge is out. But nobody would listen. They would honk at him, they would curse at him, they would give him the bird. They were in a hurry and they did not have time to stop and hear the warning and car after car drove on by him, scoffing at him, unaware of the danger that was ahead and as a result, plunged into those icy waters. Friends, in the days of Noah, people heard the warning, but they were willfully chose to not believe that the warning would come true. Today, God, through the apostle Peter, is warning you of the coming judgment and fire. Will you heed the warning? Will you ponder the warning? Will you believe the warning is true? Are you ready for judgment day? Are you ready to meet your maker? Judgment day is an awesome reality that we are called to remember, to bring to mind often and live in light of it. And so for some, those who do not heed the warning, judgment day will be a great horror. But for others who heed the warning, judgment day will be a day of great rejoicing. I want to split this thought into two questions of the judgment day being a day of great rejoicing. First off, how can we rejoice in judgment day? How is it possible that we as sinful human beings can look forward to judgment day? And then secondly, what will we rejoice in in judgment day? So first, how can we rejoice on judgment day if Jesus again if we, are, if we are exposed, if, if everything that we've done and thought and said is laid bare before God and God is going to judge us according to our works, all of us are in trouble. All of us would hear those words that say, depart from me, you curse into eternal fire. But he says there are those, the righteous, whom he will come to and he will say, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, how is this possible? How can we be found righteous even though we are sinful people? Well, look at verse 8 with me. Peter continues. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. He's responding to the scoffers who say, where is he? He said he's coming. I don't see him. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, why do we need repentance? Again, continues, because the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You know, anyone here with an honest bone in their body reads the end of verse 10 knowing that we will be exposed, and it is a terrifying statement. It is terrifying because if all of our works are exposed, God will know and we will know that we deserve judgment, that we deserve punishment for our sin. 
But even in this passage, Peter highlights for us that there is a way out of this punishment, a way out of this judgment. Look at verse 9 with me again. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. How do some count slowness? Well, if you're slow, you know, people might think that you're slow because you're inattentive, because you're lazy, because you're inept. But that's not why the Lord is slow. The Lord isn't slow because he doesn't love you, but he is slow exactly because he loves you, Peter says. Verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill the promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but, but that all should reach repentance. How can the day of judgment for sinful people become a day of rejoicing? According to verse 9, it comes only through repentance. That is, we don't come before our judge and say, I have been a good person because he will know better. We don't fool ourselves into we're thinking we're good people. We don't try to fool him into thinking we're good people. Rather, we come and we say, I am not good. I am sinful. I am flawed. I am dirty. There is blood on my hands. We come confessing our ungoodness. You see, repentance is the drawbridge to joy and rejoicing and salvation. The Westminster Confession puts it this way. It says, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. It's a saving grace. By it, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiness of his sin as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the understanding of his mercy in Christ, to such as are penitent, that is repentant, so grieved for and hates his sin, as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. It continues and says, Repentance is the act of God's free grace in Christ. Yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. And then I love this next line. He says, as there is no sin so small that it does not deserve damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Maybe you are here today and you think you have out God's grace. Maybe you're here today and you think that you have out God's mercy, but we are told that there is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven. And so how can Judgment Day, a day of great justice, become a day of great rejoicing for us? It's through the drawbridge of repentance, confessing our sin, grieving our sin, asking for forgiveness for our sin, and then looking to Jesus, the great judge who on the cross was judged for us, was judged on our behalf, who took on the penalty for sin, which is death, so that we could inherit everlasting life. There's a classic illustration of this. Maybe you've heard of it before, but there's a story of a, of a guy uh, who is, who's driving down the highway 105 miles per hour. And he gets pulled over by the police, and he's busted, and he's guilty, and he knows it. And so the car is impounded, and he's taken off to the court. And when he gets to court, he sees that his father is sitting as judge in that courtroom. And so he thinks to himself, oh, man, I I got it made. Like, my dad loves me. He cares for me. He's just going to let me off easy. 
And then he continues to process through and he thinks, but wait, my dad is a righteous judge. He doesn't let the innocent go to prison and he doesn't let the guilty go away with no penalty. And so there he is in the courtroom. He's wondering, what is my father going to do? Is he going to love me with mercy and grace or is he going to be just and righteous and punish me as I deserve? And so he hears the crime against his son. He asks for a plea. The son pleads guilty because it is obvious that he is guilty. And the judge says that will be a fine of $1,500 or a week in prison. And the son cannot pay the fine. And yet the judge bangs the gavel. And as the bailiff takes the son away, the judge steps down from his chair. And he pulls out his pocketbook and he writes a check for $1,500. And gives it to his son to turn into the court to be released from prison. You see, in that instance, the judge took on the judgment of his beloved. The judgment was $1,500. That was the right penalty for that sin. And yet the judge stepped down to pay for that judgment. Friends, we are all guilty of sin. And the Bible tells us that the penalty of sin is death. Not only physical death, but eternal death in the lake of fire. Where the justice and wrath of God are poured out upon us. But the good news of the gospel is our judge, Jesus Christ, went on the cross to take on our judgment from God who took on the wrath that we deserve so that we can have eternal life. And that's how we can rejoice in judgment day. That when we get to that day, there will be no judgment left for us because all of our penalty has been paid for on the cross by Christ. And so that's how we rejoice in judgment day. Now, second... What will we rejoice in on Judgment Day? Look at verse 11 with me. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But... According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, there are many, day, many reasons that those who trust in Christ will rejoice on Judgment Day. We'll cover some later. But one reason that we will rejoice on Judgment Day is because from the ashes of judgment are going to come a new heavens and a new earth. And do you see how he describes it there at the end of verse 13? And this new heavens and new earth, it is going to be a place where righteousness dwells. All of us desire to see a world that is made right again. All of us hope for a world where the good guy wins. All of us cry out for the horror and devastation of evil to be done away with. You know, it's interesting when we sent some people down to Costa Rica for a mission trip this year. And I wasn't here two Sundays ago when they shared we were on vacation. And I so desperately wanted to hear it. And so I've asked a couple of them. I said, hey, how was the mission trip? And the response is typically, eh, which is concerning that people would respond that way. I mean, usually people say, oh, the mission trip is great. But they respond, eh. and I'm like, oh, no, what happened? And I'm like, well, are you glad that you went on the mission trip? And, and the response is always, oh, yeah, I'm so glad I went on it. 
And then it's like, okay, so why were you hesitant when I asked how the mission trip was? Why, why, eh? Like, well, we saw things that we, that we wish we could unsee. You know, such horrific, unrighteous things were going on. Women were made to do things that we can't even repeat from the pulpit or in our households. Fathers were renting out their daughters to gain a few bucks. Children were discarded like used tissue. It was horrific. They saw evil at work. They saw the devastation of unrighteousness. And so in that midst, we are told this great and glorious truth. That there is coming a heavens and an earth where righteousness will dwell. And there will be no more suffering or pain. Revelations 21 describes it for us. It says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And then hear this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. How can we rejoice in judgment day? Through the drawbridge of repentance and accepting Christ who took our judgment on our behalf. Why will we rejoice in judgment day? Because we will live in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Finally, we should ready ourselves for judgment day. I'm going to go quick because I'm running out of time. Verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. Exert yourself to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The only way that we can be found by Christ without spot or blemish and at peace with God is if we are found in Christ who had no spot or blemish and brings us peace with God. But with this exhortation, Peter is saying, now be who you are. You have been washed by your groom. You have been made spotless and pure. So live a spotless and pure life to be ready for him to come. Verse 15, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so Peter is saying, listen, I know some of the things that, Peter, or that Paul writes are hard to understand, but, but what devious people are doing is they're taking those hard to understand things and they're twisting them to make them contrary to the rest of scripture so they can fulfill their own sinful desires. He says, watch out for them. I know they're deceiving and this is how we guard ourselves. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and to the day of eternity. So how do we ready ourselves as a church for the day of judgment? It's by growing in the grace of God, growing in the knowledge of God through the word of God and the people of God. And we do this to ready ourselves for our Savior. Let me illustrate it this way. Trish and I were married February 10th, 2001. And in days prior to that wedding, I did things that I had not done in years, okay? 
For example, I paid to get a haircut. I never paid to get a haircut. Matter of fact, I think that's the last time I paid to get a haircut. I always cut my own hair. I know you're thinking, I can tell, right? But I don't care. I save the money. I paid to get a haircut. I wore a fancy suit. I shaved my face clean. I watched what I was eating so I could be a little skinnier. I think I even went and fake baked a little bit. Because I was preparing for that wedding day. I was preparing for my bride. Here is another beautiful motivation for pursuing godless. We are preparing ourselves for our Savior. Because judgment day will bring the wedding supper of the Lamb. In which his church, his bride will be united with him. And so as we pursue holiness and godliness, we prepare ourselves for our Savior. Let me end with this. In our house, birthdays are a big deal. Um, mostly because Trish makes it that way. But when the kids come downstairs on their birthday, there are streamers hanging over the table and there is a big, big birthday cake sign that says, happy birthday, and then you fill in the name. That morning they get donuts, they get to do something fun in the afternoon, they get to pick out what we have for dinner. We pray for them, we celebrate them, we give thanks to God for them. It is their day. And so they're kind of the center of attention on that day. In verse 10 and in other places in scripture, we are told that the judgment day is the Lord's day. And it's called the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, because he is the center of that day. He will be the blazing glory of that day. When Christ returns all of our attention, all of our passions, all of our joys will be focused on him. I want to invite you for a second just to close your eyes, just for a second, if they're not already closed. <laughs> and I want to imagine yourself standing in your front yard, okay? And you're mowing the grass or picking up sticks, and you look up into the sky, and this is what you see. This is from Revelations 19. John writes, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, Jesus is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can open your eyes now. Needless to say, Jesus knows how to make an entrance. And when he returns, he will be the center of all of our attention. He will be the center of all of our joy and the center of all of our praise because it is the day of the Lord. You know, it could be centuries. It could be years. It could be months. It could be days. It could be second till Christ's return. Remember the day of the Lord, repenting and trusting in Jesus. Rejoice in the day of the Lord, knowing that he will bring a new heavens and new earth where righteousness reigns. And ready yourself for the day of the Lord, preparing yourself like a bride for her groom. 
pursuing the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider the judgment day, help us to be a people that are mindful of it. I confess that I often don't think of your return. Help to draw to mind more frequently and more clearly, God, so that we can be spurred to pursue holiness and godliness in preparation for our meeting, so that we can pursue those who don't know you, that they too may rejoice on the day of judgment. Guide us and direct us by your spirit to live as those who know that our days are numbered, that you will return and that righteousness will reign again. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded of the marriage supper of the Lamb that is to come, a great feast in which we celebrate our union with you and the new heavens and the new earth. And so, God, as we partake of these elements, help nourish us and remind us of the hope that we have for that judgment day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.